Well, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and again, we are continuing uh, the seemingly never-ending series in Christ, Prophet, Priest, and King. I was... uh, I called um, a local pastor to run something by him about this study, and as I was describing to him, I said, I've been preaching on the threefold office of Christ for what seems like forever, (laughs) Um, but uh, I I think it's been a useful study, and we've been able to learn a lot of uh, what we have been designed for. We were created for these roles, and of course, sin came in, corrupted our ability to fully complete these roles as we have been designed which points forward to the fact that we need someone to come and fulfill these offices perfectly for us. We need a perfect prophet. There were failures in all the prophets. We need a perfect priest. The priests themselves became corrupted by sin. And of course, we're seeing we need a king, a perfect king. And so we're looking at the kingly office. And in particular, we have been looking at the Davidic dynasty. And we've been seeing how Um, God had always intended for Israel to have a king. The first king that that they brought in was not a king of God's choosing, but was a king of Israel's choosing. Israel stubbornly, persistently wanted to be like the nations around them. And as a result of that, they, they chose Saul to be king. And Saul was a disaster as a king, someone who turned away from the Lord, continued to disobey him. And in the end, uh, was ended up having the kingdom taken from him. And then it was given to David. And we've been looking at this Davidic dynasty. And then what we're going to look at today is God has graciously worked for David as he has given him victory, as he has, um, David has shown patient obedience to the Lord. We looked at that last week, how he didn't um, raise his hand against Saul, but he left it in the Lord's hands. And there's much to learn of that for us in the way that we deal with those who use us wrongly and how we should leave vengeance in the hands of God. Well, we see in 1 Samuel, or I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see that David's kingdom and his reign, his dynasty, is established by God's covenant. So look with me, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. 
And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. A violent, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that we live in a day and age in which we have the full counsel of your word. Your word is complete. And Father, as we, if we had lived thousands of years ago, if we had lived at the time of when this prophecy was given, if we had lived in the times of the other kings of Israel, if we had lived in the times of the prophets, Father, we would not know how these prophecies would be, be fulfilled. And yet, Father, we thank You that today we, it is revealed to us in Your Word that these prophecies, this covenant, these promises are fulfilled fully in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we are able to take hope that we are truly members of Your kingdom as we are finding our hope in the King of kings alone. So, Father, as we look at these promises made to David, as we see the covenant confirmed in the Psalms, and then, Father, as we finally see how Your Son fulfills these promises, may we be encouraged and may our faith grow as a result of seeing Your faithfulness to Your Word. Lord, we confess that we are much like the Father who came to You, to Your Son, and sought healing for His child. And, and He came and fell at our Savior's feet and confessed His belief in Christ. But then He also saw and confessed His weakness and cried out that He would help, that Lord, that, that, that Christ would help His unbelief. So, Father, today, that is our cry. We come before You. We believe, Lord, Help our unbelief. Work through your word this evening. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. So we are seeing how David and his kingdom is in particular is established by covenant. Now, now we see in particular the commentary that's made in the first couple verses of 2 Samuel that David's reign brings peace. Now this 
is not a result of some sort of chance happenstance or, or, or it's not the result of, of, uh, of just good luck that David had, but David's faith in the Lord, his obedience to his command, brought him prosperity and success. And again, we saw how David was committed to following the Lord, following what he had said, patiently waiting for him to fulfill his promises. Again, David was ordained and, and, and or was anointed king of Israel. Samuel poured the oil on his head, and then it took years still for him to ascend to the throne after Saul's reign had ended. And so David's obedience, his faith and obedience to the Lord is rewarded with this success. And what we find is through David's dependence on the Lord, Israel is now able to experience a period of peace, a respite and a rest from their enemies. Again, we see what's said there in verse 1. The king lived in his house, and the Lord, from his grace, had given to him rest from all his surrounding enemies. I mean, if you remember the, the story, the history of Israel, they were constantly being harassed, constantly having difficulty with the Philistines, with the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Perizzites. There were a number of nations that continued to be an issue for Israel. And we come to this point in David's reign, and now they have peace. Now, this was actually prophesied by Moses that there would be an extended peace in Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 10 through 14, Moses speaking to Israel as a prophet says, When you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord God is giving you to inherit, and when, notice what he says there, not if, when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose. To make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you. Your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. Your tithes and the contribution that you present. And all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you, Lord, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants. And the Levite that is within your town, since he has no portion or inheritance with you, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Now, we have this wonderful hope given in the law of Moses. As Moses tells Israel, you're going to go over, you're going to possess the land, and when the day comes that you have peace from all your enemies. Now, I think it's just important for us to recognize that there has been hundreds of years since this prophecy was given, and we see and find the fulfillment of it with David. Hundreds of years. I think this is important for us to keep in mind as we consider the difficulties that we often face. You know, it it has been thousands of years since Jesus said he was going to return, right? He hasn't come back, at least not yet. And so that can cause us to to doubt, that can cause us to wonder. In fact, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, a, an attack 
against the gospel that is said by those who say, where is the promise of His coming? All things are continuing as they have from the beginning. And I think what we're able to do when we look back and we see promises of God made hundreds of years before they are fulfilled is it is a way for us to recognize God never fails to fulfill His promises. As Second Peter tells us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. I think it's important for us to recognize here, particularly even as we saw this morning, that God's judgment on false teachers is not idle. It's not, it's not being delayed for, for some reason outside of God's control. God does and brings about His promises. He's not slow to fulfill them. It's not like He's dragging His feet. But the wonderful thing we find is that God is patient toward us. What a wonderful hope we have that God is patient with us. Long-suffering with us. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think one thing we can take from this is that perhaps one of the reasons, in fact, we know one of the reasons why Christ has not returned yet, why He has not brought about that final judgment yet is because He still has many people in this world to save. I I think of the end of the encounter of Jesus with the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. And after His disciples come back and they see Him talking with the Samaritan woman, and, and that seemed to be very, very odd, particularly in that day and age, particularly for a Jew to talk with a Samaritan in general, but then for a man to talk with a woman, that was unheard of. And so they came to Christ and and they talked to Him. And and as the town was coming out after this woman had been changed radically by the grace of God and said, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Surely this is the Messiah. And these men that would have been arrayed in white linen clothing and coming in the middle of the day as the sun would have been shining upon them, Jesus turns and talks to His disciples and says, look, The fields are white unto harvest. I praise the Lord that He is long-suffering and patient towards us. That He withholds His wrath because He has people yet to save. But yet still, for us, it can be difficult. Why do we face these extended periods of time where it seems like God is not fulfilling his promises. And James gives us the answer for this. That as our faith is tested, it produces patience or steadfastness. So as we look back and we see the, the, the time difference between Moses' prophecy that God would bring Israel into rest, it is also an opportunity for us to stand back and to say, God is faithful. Great is his faithfulness to His promises. It's also, I think, important for us when we look at that Deuteronomy passage to see what was going to happen when that time of rest was finally brought upon Israel. And it was that there would be a place for God to set up His name. 
a place where he would dwell, and particularly a place where Israel would go to worship him. We actually find, as we, as we were to continue past David's um, reign, and particularly with his son, notably with his son Solomon, one of the ways in which Solomon begins to diverge from his father David is that he sets up high places. God only ever intended for Israel to worship him in one place, the tabernacle when they wandered through the wilderness, and then the temple that Solomon himself had built. And yet Solomon is led astray by the idolatry of his wives, the idolatry of the nations around him, and he sets up high places where they worship these other gods. This is a sin that will plague the kings of Israel. And so it's important for us to also recognize here that God intends to be worshipped as He prescribes. The high places, yes, were places where worship to foreign gods would happen, but it also could just be a place where someone would go and say, I'm going to worship God my own way and set up their own high place. And God does not honor that which disobeys His Word. And so this peace that David's reign had brought in, likely David, looking back, seeing the prophecy of Moses, now feels that it is his responsibility to build this place for God's name. And so he comes to Nathan the prophet, and he says, look, I'm, I'm dwelling in a house of cedar. My house is taken care of, but yet the ark of God, which is the dwelling place of God, still dwells in a tent. And the implication is that David wants to go and to build the temple. And so Nathan, speaking probably, thinking, well, this is a good thing. Of course, why wouldn't God want David to build him a temple? He says, go and do all that's in your heart. But then that night, God comes to Nathan and says, no, he's not going to build me a a temple for my name. And we find in 1 Chronicles 22 that the reason for this, one of the reasons for this, is that David had been a man of violence, not a man of peace. We see in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 8, But the word of the Lord came to me, this is David, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. The implication is that, particularly as, as Moses' prophecy speaks of a time of peace, the implication is, is that the violence and the bloodshed that David had had throughout all his, all his reign, and even before that, would not truly show the type of kingdom that God wanted to be built when He settled in Israel. It was a kingdom fully peaceful. And so He comes to David and says, You won't build me. A, a, a name. He won't build me a house. But then God does something remarkable. Because I think David's desire to build the house for God is a genuine desire. It's a good desire. And so God rewards David's desire by building David's house instead. Notice what he says here. He says in verse 11. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, um, or I'm sorry, he says, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that 
the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, he's not speaking here of a physical house. David already has a house built of cedar. He already has a magnificent palace to live in. But rather, he's speaking of his building the house of his dynasty eternally. And so we see some very clear promises made to David in verses 13 through the end of this chapter. So let's just quickly look at the promises of the covenant with David. He, God is providing very clear promises in His covenant with David. Now, it's important to note here, and we're, we're going to be looking in just a few moments in Psalm 89, but in this passage, the term covenant we don't see brought up anywhere. But yet in Psalm 89, verse 3, it is abundantly clear God or the psalmist refers to that as the covenant that God made with David. So we see here clearly God's covenant. And the way in which God deals with humanity is primarily through covenants. He made promises to Adam and Eve saying, don't partake of this tree and you'll be blessed. Partake of this tree and you'll be cursed. And what happened? They partook of the tree and they were cursed. And so God made a second covenant, a covenant that was not um, dependent on Adam and Eve doing anything, but the fact that God would give a seed that would come, an offspring of the woman that would come, and provide relief from this curse by breaking the curse and smashing the head of the servant. God provided covenants to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. God provided a covenant with His people Israel. He provided a covenant to, to Noah. And here we see Him providing a covenant with David. And all these covenants, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, the covenant with Israel, and particularly the covenant with David, which is the climax, I would say, of these Old Testament covenants, all of them are pointing to the ways in which God will fulfill that first covenant with the people of Israel, with sinners, in promising the curse reverser. So what are these promises that God makes to David? Well, God will raise up David's offspring coming from David's lineage, and he will establish that throne forever. Notice what he says in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So there is a promise that this, this one who will have his kingdom that is fully established will come from David's own lineage. Notice what he says about the relationship that he will have with this one. He says, first of all, that he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. The relationship that God will have with David's offspring will be the closest of relationships that God has with, that anyone has, father and son. We see, thirdly, that when David's offspring sins, God will discipline them. But he will not forsake him or let his steadfast love depart from him. Look again in verse 14. When, when he commits iniquity, 
I will discipline him. I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the Son of Men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And then we see the final promises that God will establish David's house and kingdom eternally before God Himself. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So we see remarkable promises made to David here. Promises that David didn't deserve. We're going to look later on in the next couple weeks and see how David himself failed. How he was a sinner. We'll look at the other kings very briefly of Israel. And you know what you see with each and every one of them? They all fail. The best of the best of the kings of Israel still fail. Yet God places his steadfast love. He does not reject David's kingdom. He does not reject the Davidic dynasty. He keeps his promises. Even when Israel's kings, all of them are deposed and the nation is taken away into captivity, God will still remain true to those promises. Which brings us then to the covenant confirmed. And this is in Psalm 89. So if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 89. What we're going to see here is a recounting of the Davidic covenant in some pretty specific detail. And as a result of this psalm, which, which is sort of broken up into two parts, if we look through ver- 1 through verse 37, we have this recounting of the promises that God made to David and the promises made in the covenant. But then, in the rest of the chapter, verses 38 through 52, we see a different shift in tone. And we'll, we'll talk about that because I think there's something very helpful for us to learn from that as well. Psalm 89 verse 1 begins, and we must remember that the, the superscript that we see above these psalms is actually in the text. So that's inspired, it's the Word of God. So this is a maskil of Ethan the Ezraite. Now, the term maskil which is a liturgical term, maybe a musical term. We're not 100% sure what it means, but it seems to be related very closely to another Hebrew word that has to do with wisdom, and so, or teaching in particular. And so it's often thought that the maskels that you'll see throughout the Psalms are actually what we call didactic Psalms or teaching Psalms. They are meant to provide some important truth to God's people. Now, this psalm is written by one named Ethan the Ezraite. Now, we don't really know very much about Ethan the Ezraite. He's mentioned twice in Scripture, but the most prominent um, mention of him has to do with Solomon. And it's very interesting that Solomon and his reign would be associated with this because the primary fulfillment of the Davidic covenant begins in who? 
Solomon, the next king of Israel, David's son. And so it is said in the scriptures that Solomon's wisdom, because he didn't ask God for riches, he didn't ask him for power. What did Solomon ask God for? Wisdom. And it is said that Solomon's wisdom was greater than, and then they list some of the sages, some of the wise men of Israel. And guess whose name is in that list? Ethan the Ezraite. So in one sense, we can say this is the the second wisest person in Israel as he's writing this psalm. We don't know when it was written. There's a lot of different discussion and ideas about that. Uh, But I would pose to you, particularly as we come to the end of the psalm, that this is written at the end of Solomon's reign. And, And we'll see particularly why I say that in a few moments. Let's go ahead and look at this psalm. And we'll see, first of all, the thing that he brings up is the psalmist is showing that the covenant that God made with David is dependent on God's character of steadfast love and faithfulness. Look in verses 1 through 3. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. It's so important for us to recognize what the psalmist here is saying. He is calling God to account for his own words. He is saying, you said... And we have to understand that behind the promises of God lay the character of God. What type of God is our God? He is a God who has eternal, steadfast love. Remember what he said in in the Davidic covenant. I will not remove my steadfast love from David as I did from Saul. And so there's this wonderful hope that when God tells someone that he loves them, he will not turn back that love. When Jesus prays in the garden uh, for his people, for his disciples, and he says that we would be able to enter into the love that the Father has for the Son, that is an eternal love. God loves you eternally in Christ. He won't turn that back. And this brings so much hope and satisfaction for us as God's people. This world that we walk through, the world in which we live, is filled with people who fail to love us. Their love is fleeting. Their love is failing. They love only as it benefits them. They they love themselves. And as we go through life and we experience that level of betrayal of love over and over again, it can harm our hearts. It It can cause us to mourn. But when we come to God, He is a God who has set His eternal love upon us. He never turns back those whom He provides. Notice what it said, His steadfast love. He is also a God of faithfulness. God will never fail to be faithful to His promises. His character is such that He never makes a promise that He will not keep. First of all, God is omnipotent. 
There is nothing, there is no power on this universe that can stay his hand, that can say to him, you will not do this. There's nothing that exists that could possibly prevent him from keeping his promises to his people. And then he is a God whose character is that which is always faithful. He always establishes his faithfulness. It's established in the heavens, the psalmist says. And then the psalmist brings a focus to these promises. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant. Do you realize the, the, the impact of this statement? God took an oath. He swore that he would keep the covenant he has said with David. He binds himself to these promises by swearing an oath. And so when we look at the promises made to David, which we're going to see next week, are promises that we are able to be the beneficiaries of in Christ. Those promises are sure. When God swore an oath to David, He swore it to all those who would be in David's offspring. All those in Christ. So that means that God, in swearing an oath to David, guess who he also swore an oath to? You and me, if we're in Christ. And so God's promises are sure. We see that promise described in verse 4. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Well, then we see the psalmist praising God's omnipotent power because that power is a guarantee of His promises. We see in verses 5-8, through listen, there is no one like our God. Look at verse 5. Let the heavens praise Your wonders, O Lord, Your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around Him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as You are, O Lord, with Your faithfulness all around You. God is in a place exalted where no one has the power that He has. And as no one is like God in power, then no one has the sovereignty that God has. His sovereignty is absolute. Look at verses 9 through 13. What does God rule? The raging of the sea. I don't know if you've ever seen what a sea looks like, the sea looks like in a storm. I've never really experienced that on a first-hand basis, but I do remember uh, one year, I think it was in high school, I went down to visit my friend Zach as he, was, he had moved from Pennsylvania to Florida. And, you know, he had, uh, he had a boat and then he had sea dews. And so he lived on an, an inlet uh, and, and we had the opportunity, you know, his, his stepfather says, go ahead and take the sea dews out. And so we took the sea dews out and, there, and there's this little bay that, that went out and then you could actually go, once you went in the bay, you could go out into the Gulf of Mexico. And when we left uh, the dock, 
that, that afternoon, we went out there, and it was beautiful. The sun was shining, and it was really nice, and so we're like, oh, this is great. So we head out, and we go through this bay, go through this inland, and we end up in the Gulf of Mexico. And then as we keep going, my friend, of course, who's more familiar with this area than I am, and also he's, I must say this too, he is by himself on a sea I'm driving the other sea and then his friend is on the back of the sea with me. So we're twice as heavy as he is. So we get out there, and then off in the distance, we see these dark storm clouds start to come. And, and he keeps going, and finally I said, hey, we need to go back. And so he's like, all right. So he turns around, and by the time he turns around and we start back in, we start to get these, these little waves. And they're, you know, they're doing okay. It's no big deal. But then those waves start to be about five feet, six feet high as they're swelling and, of course, my friend, he's on his own sea which is a little bit more powerful than the one I have. And he just gets up on the sea revs it all the way, and he just skims off the top of these waves. I can't get the speed up enough to do that. So guess what I have to do for probably, I don't know, it felt like three miles. Up and down each wave the entire time. And, the, the sea, and I tell you, there was one point where I started to get a little concerned. Like, are we going to make it back to the bay? We got back to the bay, and thankfully it was a lot calmer in the bay, and we were zooming around in and out, and then that's when, uh, I don't know, harbor patrol or whatever said, you can't do that, and we had to go back. So we got in trouble. But anyways, foolish teenagers as they are. But I remember, and it was just, it was just a little taste of what the sea could be, just little, little five-foot waves that I had to go up and down, and, and the Lord preserved me, and I'm here today, thankfully. But have you ever seen what a raging sea looks like? A sea that has swells that are 10 feet, 12 feet, 15 feet tall. I've seen images of huge freighters that are filled with all sorts of goods. And they're in these, in these terrible storms. And, and you see these giant ships going way down and then coming right up again. I mean, the sea can be treacherous. The sea in a hurricane is raging and fomenting. Who's in control of the raging sea? God is. He rules the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, what does God do? You still them. And of course, we can't read that with hearing Christ's words. As he comes out on the boat, the disciples concerned as they were caught in a raging sea. And what is Jesus doing in the bow of the ship? Sleeping. He comes out and says, peace be what? Still. He stills the raging sea. A God who has such power over nature also provides and shows his power over the nations. He says, you crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. He is a God who brings sure and complete victory against His enemies. He is a God who owns all that exists, both the spiritual and physical. Notice what he says, verse 11, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabar and Hermon joyously praise your name. 
And this power, this sovereignty that God has, it is administered by His strong hand. Notice what he says. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. And this power is all coming back to recognize and show that God will keep His promises to David. Not only is God's power shown in this way, but His character is a character of righteousness. What God would our God be if He made a promise and then went back on it? But that is not our God. Notice what He says in verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. God will always act justly. He will always act righteously. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And so what are we, His people, to do? We're to rejoice in the benefits of this omnipotent power. Look at verses 15 through 18. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. You realize the privilege we have to walk in the light of the face of God? That the good in this world is found by Him shining His grace upon us? How can we not shout and praise Him for such blessings. These are the people who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. You favor our, by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. So we see that these people are blessed and rejoice in God's blessings. They walk in the light of God's face and they boast in His name and find a home in His righteousness. And we see that they prosper through His favor and strength. They're protected by the shield that is the Holy One of Israel. You realize all these promises that are made here are ours to claim. You realize you walk every day with the shield of God over you. As His people, you have our strong God who sovereignly administers all things, protecting you. There is no safer place than to be in the hands of our great God. So He establishes God's character. He establishes God's nature. And all of this is leading to now the terms of the covenant rehearsed again. I'm going to put these up here quickly. It tells us that David's, David is established by God's sovereign choice. Look at verses 19 through 21. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall strengthen him. That strength that is given will bring about and ensure victory over David's enemies. Look at verses 22 through 23. The enemy shall not outwit him. 
The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. And God speaks of how it is his eternal love and faithfulness that is set upon him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. We actually see God promising to fulfill the promises to Abraham through David. Look at verse 25. He speaks of how his, he'll set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. And the, the vision here, the, 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 the uh, imagery, is that of the kingdom that, is, that God had promised Abraham will reach to the Mediterranean Sea and across to the river of Jordan. That those things will be the boundaries of the kingdom. He reminds and speaks of the fact that this firstborn son, the king of kings, it will be his son. He shall cry to, book of verses 26 through 29, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. We see that there's wonderful hope here that can only find its true fulfillment in one person, Jesus Christ. Yet we see that God is not a God who leaves His people to continue in sin, but He disciplines David's children, but yet still promises to not remove His steadfast love from them. Look again with me in verse 30 through 34. If His children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. The exact same terminology used in 2 Samuel 7. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. There is a, a twofold grace of God that is seen here. First of all, we see God's grace in the fact that He disciplines His children. The scripture tells us that God disciplines His children as a father disciplines His children. And what, what is a father showing His children when He disciplines them? He's showing them His what? His love. And so when God disciplines us, His children, what is He showing us? His love. That faithfulness that He has provided, showing us that He's going to keep us from that which damages us. He's going to discipline us when we go towards sin. And then we see, secondly, the grace is that God's grace is steadfast even when we fail. Who here has not violated the statutes of God? Who here has not, not kept His promises? Who here has 
trans, who here has not transgressed His law? Who here has not committed iniquity? We all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we all continue to fall into sin. And the wonders of God's promises to us, the same promises that He's giving to David, those promises that we are able to take part of in Christ, is that He, even when we sin, He is faithful and just when we confess that sin to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The end of the passage begins with God promising again that He will never turn back his covenant to David. Look again at verses 34 through 37. I will not violate my covenant or alter the words or the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. And so we see the terms of the covenant confirmed in what the psalmist recounts here. Now, the rest of the psalm, the tone is completely different. I think it's important we look very briefly at the rest of the psalm. Again, we have this this amazing statement in verse 34. God will never violate His covenant. He'll never alter the word that He's sworn to His people. But yet, Ethan is experiencing something that seems to conflict with that. Because look at what happens in verse 38. But now, you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against you're anointed. He says that you have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of his sword. And you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth and you have covered him with shame. What is going on? And as this is said to be written by Ethan the Ezraite, the only conclusion I can make here is that he is seeing the end of Solomon's reign. And it is not pretty. Solomon's own sons rise up against him. There's civil war that ensues. And it seems like Solomon himself is being defeated. We see Solomon's own character. He's gone and and he's worshiping to um, all sorts of gods. His heart has been taken away from the Lord by his many wives. And his kingdom is in tatters. It will eventually lead to the division of the kingdom so that north and south will remain broken after Solomon's reign. And so Ethan is looking on, likely at the end of Solomon's reign, and thinking, is God true to His promises? 
it seems like you've renounced the covenant. And so Ethan pens this psalm and cries out in verses 46 through 48, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? And so Ethan cries out, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. What a change in tone. What an internal turmoil Ethan is having. And, and what we see him doing with that turmoil is not allowing it to bring bitterness into his life, not allowing it to drive him away from God. As he sees, as Jeremiah saw, as we discussed this morning with Jeremiah, the wicked prospering and the righteous seeming to suffer. He sees the, the, the division of the kingdom. He sees the promises of God and, and they're threatened. They don't seem like they'll come true. And how our own hearts can resonate with Ethan here. I mean, we look at the state of the church today and it is chocked full of error. We yearn for revival, yet we don't seem to see it. We see the nations mocking God's servants, and we bear those insults in our hearts, the insults of many nations. And so notice how he ends this song. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and what? Amen. I find it so amazing that he ends the psalm that way. Because in reflecting on the amazing promises of God and then seeing the turmoil of his current circumstances, he ends up realizing that God is not changing. Our circumstances change all the time, right? But guess who never changes? Our God. His promises are sure. And as Ethan the Ezraite stands and looks and sees the kingdom seemingly coming apart at the seams, he sees this great nation in tatters. You know, it's not going to get much better. In fact, it's going to get a lot worse throughout Israel's history. And yet he comes away saying, Blessed be the Lord forever. Let it be so, and let it be so. Amen and amen.
And so for us, as we live in a world that is continuing to be hostile to the things of the Lord, as we live in a world where it seems like the wicked are prospering, what should we do with the consternation in our hearts? Do what Ethan did. Pray to the Lord. Call God to account for His Word. And then realize that you are to patiently wait for Him. Because next week we're going to see all these promises that have been made. All these promises made to David that Ethan has now seen a nation crumbling and wonders if they're ever going to be fulfilled. Guess, does God go back on His Word? Who fulfills them? Christ fulfills the Davidic covenant. And so, God's people had to wait hundreds of years for that fulfillment to come. You only have to wait seven days. Because next week, we'll look at how Christ fulfills the Davidic covenant. And then we'll look at the benefits that we have in Him from that Davidic covenant. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for these promises that You've made to David. Lord, we've covered a lot this evening. We've looked at a significant amount of truth, and and we've seen these glorious promises that You've made. And yet, Father, we confess that at times we can feel like the psalmist here of Psalm 89. We can feel like Ethan. Lord, Help us to rest in your promises and to know and patiently wait for you, knowing that you will always be true to your word. You have all power. You have perfect character. May that encourage us as we seek to live for you in a dark world, as we seek to be the light that points people to Christ. Father, take your word this evening, apply it to our hearts and lives. We pray this all in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks very much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.